and welcome to Beer is a Conversation, a discussion podcast put out by Australian Brews News. This is the first episode that we're doing that is the conversation only. This week we're talking to Andrew Ong from Two Brothers Brewery in Melbourne, discussing 10 years of Two Brothers. And that interview is followed by our chat with Brennan Varis, who this year was head judge at the Australian International Beer Awards. And he's also the owner of the Feral Brewing Company. We're talking to Brendan about what the Australian International Awards mean, what the various medal levels qualify for and what they mean, and also his recent use of hop extracts in a new beer for which he has received a little bit of criticism. Fascinating discussion with both of our guests today. Hope you enjoy it. Andrew Wong, welcome to Radio Brews News. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Mate, it, it, look, it really is long overdue, and I had the pleasure of sitting next to you at the Australian International Beer Awards where you picked up two trophies. Congratulations. But it also, it occurred to me just before we caught up there that I remember sitting at my desk about 10 years ago in an email landing from uh, a, a name that I didn't recognise and uh, telling me about a new brewery that was opening up in Melbourne with equipment that had been pulled out of uh, Times Square in New York, um, and that was you guys. So you guys are coming up to ten years to, to your ten year anniversary. Yeah, that's right. In fact, um, we never quite. We've sort of been talking about it lately, but we're not quite sure exactly what uh, represents ten years. Was it the day we made our first beer? Was it the day we sold our first beer, or was it when we got the keys to the factory? But definitely, this is our. Uh, uh, we're coming up to our ten year anniversary, and we think we're going to celebrate it in uh, September. Oh, terrific. Uh, actually, that's when Pete and I have our birthdays, so uh, maybe we can have a really big bash. A combined birthday? That sounds great. <laughs> but, mate, tell us a little bit. As I said, yeah, uh, I got an email describing how you guys had, in the dead of night, uh, ripped a, a brewery from a defunct uh, brewery in, in, in New York and made it your own. Maybe we can go back to uh, cast your mind back 10 years and tell us a little bit about what you were doing over in the, in the States and how you came to uh, open a brewery. Yeah, look, Dave and I, we both had previous careers in other other areas. I, I was an aeronautical engineer and Dave was a physiotherapist and not really by by design, but we both happened to end up working in the States for a good amount of time. I was on the West Coast in Seattle and Dave spent a fair bit of time up and down the East Coast from Florida to New York City. And uh, we came back in the... Um, in the sort of early 2000s to jobs here and, and both we were at points where we found, felt like we sort of needed a major change. And uh, Dave was going to go into business with two other mates um, setting up a, a discount supermarket and something fell through with the lease. And, and I got him in a weak moment and suggested that we should maybe try making some beer. Um, we both had ex- exposure to the diverse uh, diversity in craft beer, having lived in the States. And I, I certainly had sort of fallen in love with it and had to say when I returned home, uh, felt like there was opportunity to do do things here. Um, at the time, you know, Mountain Goat was doing some great things. I know Grand Ridge had been making beer for quite some time, but there really was a, a fair um, bit of inaccessibility to craft beer. And, and so I convinced Dave that maybe we should have a look at that. And so that's really what kicked it off. And so you, you were still in the States when, when this happened because you, you, you did happen upon that uh, small brewery in Times Square that was for sale? Yes, yes. So um, so once we sort of agreed that this was something we wanted to do, I actually went back to my old job, back to my old desk um, in Seattle and uh, so that I could sort of resume some residency there. But 
the idea for going back was really to um, to do some research on on breweries and brewery brands, try and figure out of those that were successful, try and get an idea of what made them successful, have a look at the ones that uh, perhaps weren't so successful and try and figure out what happened there. At the time, I was also intending to try and find some secondhand equipment uh, because back then there was really the only manufacturers equipment of equipment were uh, either in the States or Canada. Um, there was not any any options out of China and um, with the uh, labour rates being what they were, we knew that we couldn't afford to to purchase a brand new setup. So our only option was to f- try and find some secondhand equipment. And again, with the large number of craft breweries in the States back then, that seemed like the best opportunity to find some secondhand gear. Um, I was over there for about 18 months and halfway through that stint, uh, through, uh, through the grapevine, I'd became aware that the, there was a brewery in Times Square and that it, it had gone bankrupt. And um, so I got in touch with the the old operator and then eventually was put in touch with the Walt Disney Corporation who had acquired the, the bankrupt business. Um, they wanted to take over the business so that they could have the lease to this three-level store in Times Square so that they could turn it into a, a merchandise shop. And they had all this brewing equipment up on the third floor uh, that they didn't really want. And they, they had two options, I guess. They could have cut it up with an oxy torch and sold it for scrap or essentially for about the same price, they, they sold it to us and, and we we managed to um, to ship it out of there. That wasn't an easy thing either, as you might imagine. Times Square pretty much goes around the clock. And at the time, my challenge was to try and find a way to get the equipment out. We approached the the city in Manhattan to find out how to get our trucks in there and they basically said they wouldn't issue permits for anything longer than 30 feet. And that would have resulted in about 30 trucks, which we knew was logistically sort of impossible. So eventually we got lucky. I I found a a trucking company in New Jersey that just said, look, you know, it's that way. What we're going to do is roll in with our trucks 20 minutes apart. It's going to be done on a Tuesday morning at midnight. Um, the trucks will not stop and wait. So you've got to have your forklift running. You have got to have everything ready to load. And we're not stopping for anyone. If, you, if you're not there, um, the trucks will keep going. And uh, and so that's how we got them out. It's interesting that, you know, 10 years ago, we, we've seen this unprecedented growth in the U.S. craft beer scene. And, uh, you know, uh, just the the number, I think there was only about 1,500 breweries uh, in the States back then, and we're now over 5,000. It's interesting that a, a brewery hadn't succeeded way back then when craft beer was really starting to take off. Yeah, so the particular story behind that one, um, it was kind of unfortunate. The, the, the operator that was running it, um, uh, she had uh, an... She already had a brewery that was going really well. It was more of an on-premise type business, and it was in a slightly lower rent part of town, a little less glamorous. The brewing equipment was not fantastic, and the beer was kind of okay, but the place was heaving. And so based on that, she decided to really upscale everything. So purchased a brand new brewing system. Um, the the space that she ended up with uh, really accommodated 500 people over three levels. But the way the business was set up and the venue was set up really, in hindsight, didn't work that well. At ground level, when people would walk past the front door, the front bar next to the street would hold about 40 people and it looked packed at that stage. But then the rest of the restaurant was kind of empty. And so they just never really got the volume of 
trade necessary to support the um, to support the business. Uh, and it lasted, I think, for about 18 months. The beer was really good, um, and uh, we're still uh, good friends with the brewer who used to brew there. But uh, the numbers just didn't work for them, which was unfortunate. Yeah, Andrew, it's interesting that you talk about the difficulties that you had getting the brewery out or the brew house out of the, its uh, its then current digs. I think my most early memory of Two Brothers is um, related to your first, well, the first beer that I had of yours, which was the Growler, which kind of tells a bit of the story of, of the difficulty you had uh, actually getting it in at the other end. Was there truth involved in the story that there was perhaps a, a tree blocking the way, um, a chainsaw and no permits from the city of Kingston? So, um, so we, we like to tell a few stories and <laughs> some of the, the stories are 95% true and some of them are more like about 30% true and that, that one was on the lower end of the scale. But we, we did have some challenges, including even getting the vessels into into our building. Um, you know, our neighbour here, who was sort of watched with amusement as we went to set up the brewery, and he had a forklift licence and we didn't, and so he was really helpful to us. And I got our um, one of our combination brew house vessels to the front door, and he looked at it and he said, uh, he said that's not going to fit. And I said, yeah, it'll fit. So he jumped in his car and went home. And he drove past the building at nine o'clock at night and I was still there trying to get the roller door off its hinges so that we could get this vessel in. So so we we did have some challenges um, uh, uh, getting getting the vessels in, but fortunately, uh, uh, generally you can find a way, yeah. <laughs> and and you you are based at Moorabbin. Um, at, at that stage, that probably wasn't regarded as the uh, hippest place to locate a, a brewery. What was the thinking with when you decided to create a brewery in Melbourne, locating it there and uh, the way you went about that? Yeah, it was, um, you know, we we did a lot of things just on sort of blind, I guess you'd call it uh, naivety. Uh, and that was that was sort of one of them. It, it actually worked out for us in, in ways that we didn't expect. So we, we knew that we didn't have the appetite to take on a commercial zoned lease, uh, like a high street lease, where we could potentially manufacture beer in a retail sort of environment, that we just didn't have the the funds or the stomach to to take on that kind of lease commitment. So, and our intention was always to make beer for others rather than to sell it in a in a brew pub type environment. So it, it did drive us to look for an industrial location. Both Dave and I sort of have generally lived in the Bayside area. So it was it was kind of helpful for, for us to be, be near that, which is in Moorabbin. But what we found was, and I guess we just got lucky with timing, but back eight, 10 years ago, in terms of venues, drinking venues, there really weren't very many licensed venues around. And we had just come off th- through that sort of period where a lot of the Bayside pubs had been converted to pokey venues in the in the 90s and then a lot of them had really fallen out of favor with local punters and a number of them had been sold off and converted to real estate accommodation and so there wasn't a lot of really social drinking venues around at that time and we we opened so we, we made the, a bar and we set up a bar inside the factory in Moorabbin and most people sort of wondered what we were thinking. And to be honest, our idea was that we would have a cellar door and we'd sell a couple of six packs on a Friday afternoon and that would be it. But as it turned out, due to the lack of watering holes in the general area, after a, a year or so, once people started to find us, it became really popular. And we sort of had the reverse problem for a good number of years where people would come to the venue, we'd sort of be over capacity, 
we'd be queuing people at the door, um, hoping that no more people turned up. So in a way, it did kind of work as a venue, but we never really sort of planned around it. Andrew, I think one of the other things that um, really strikes me about Two Brothers is the fact that you've always let the beers do the talking. Um, we haven't seen yourself or David or, or Ben, your your brewer, I guess, sort of out and about all that much. And having said that, the beers certainly do stand on their own two feet. But is that has that been a... Uh, uh, I guess a reluctant thing, or has that been a deliberate ploy to sort of say, well, you know, let, let's just make good beer and and, uh, and and people will kind of find it. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting one, and and you know what, I, we sort of put our hands up here, and I have to admit that. So within within two brothers, we're we're really passionate about the beer, and we're really sort of purposeful about making beer that people can drink. It's it's all about beer that people can just enjoy without having to think about too much. But what we've always lacked, and still to some degree we do, is a sort of a marketing proficiency within the company. And you might sort of look historically on what we've done and it'll become pretty evident, but neither Dave or I are marketers. We've, we sort of went into it with the idea that we would make beer and good beer would sell. But interestingly enough, I think in, in these times, that's not enough anymore. And I can sort of see going forward with the huge number of uh, craft brands that are currently here and the many more that we can see are going to follow, that uh, a masterful branding and marketing division is really going to be uh, an, an essence that, that any successful microbrewer or craft craft brand will need beyond what, when we started, we we thought was just the need to make really good beer and to, to fill segments that hadn't yet been filled. Do you think that you were lucky in that sense that you started 10 years ago? Could you run your business the way that you did then if you were opening in 2017? Yeah, I, I think um, I think certainly we were lucky and I guess we probably wouldn't have gone into it uh, bringing to the business and the industry what we had back then. We wouldn't plan to do that now. You know, back then we knew that there was a, a lack of alternatives. Um, those that were in it were doing a really good job, um, but there was still plenty of space. And, you know... Our, our plan was to bring styles that weren't available. But you look at the beerscape now, and for anyone defined style, and I think there's about 80 odd uh, recognised different beer substyles, uh, you'll find three or four people producing that style of beer. So there just isn't the space, I don't think, to come in anymore with the with the idea that just providing good beer is, is enough. I think these days uh, it's definitely going to be more about how you market the beer. And for us, you know, I, I probably wouldn't enter the, the sector at this stage. I think there's probably a bit of consolidation to, to happen. I would say in the two to four year mark from now, we'll probably see some consolidation of the number of brewery brand master brands and also um, uh, SKU brands. I don't think there's enough consumer space to support all of what's happening at the moment. Not to say that new entrants won't succeed, but I think as a total, there'll probably be some consolidation. Is that a wholesale venues that are trying to wholesale, or do you think that even retail with uh, brew pubs are going to struggle a little bit as well? I, I think I think brew pubs are probably a, a much safer option. Definitely in the in the wholesale area, it's going to be challenging for probably the good many um, brands. And I can see price pressures developing in that area as people sort of struggle to differentiate their offering from others. 
the the retail at a retail level that's kind of in- interesting too and what we saw and this sort of follows on from my earlier point and what we saw from about probably six years ago to now particularly around melbourne is a really large increase in the number of licensed venues that there are providing uh, licensed experiences for consumers nowadays we see even in the southeast where we're located in any shopping strip you'll see two or three uh, licensed cafes that run from 7am serving coffees and cappuccinos all the way till 11pm where they operate as a bar and that that wasn't around several years ago but now we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of um, licensed options for for local consumers i still think microbreweries will have their own pull and attraction and certainly in a really local sense we can see that consumers will get behind a local brewery and support that so i think there probably is space for uh, brew pubs to be to have some success that's probably a really good segue into um i guess introducing to those who are uh, perhaps familiar with the old two brothers but that you've recently relaunched the brewery with i guess more of a focus on the on that consumer you know the the brew pub or cellar door side of things yeah no that that's right so um we reached out and we, we got some marketing help because we knew we needed some, uh, which has been really good. We rebranded everything earlier this year, which we're really excited about. We ended up with sort of a series of brands that were not really well connected visually. And so with the help of, uh, of an agency, we managed to pull them back into line and we're really excited about the sort of new look and feel of our of our products. And, and with that comes a bit of a local marketing push for, for the venue. And uh, we're going to be doing some, I think, some interesting things locally to uh, to engage with our with our local fans. It's interesting you say that because I think one of the things that has set Two Brothers apart in terms of, um, and from speaking to you, unintentional marketing, um, but the your label artwork has always been, you've always been able to find Two Brothers, which is something I've been a little bit critical of some other brands where it's either the style or, you know, the funky name or the pun that they've thought up and you, but you can't immediately see where that beer's come from. Yours are clearly Two Brothers and then the artwork, I think particularly, um, I think the Chief, the Grizz and uh, the Kung Fu Rice Lager, have just as a tap point, a, a decal, but also as the, the label is, um, I don't know what it is because as I, I'm a bit like you, don't know a lot about marketing, I, you know, I... I <laughs> I know it's necessary, but I don't actually know how it works. How have you gone about maintaining that without losing, I guess? So, yeah, keeping it relevant and keeping it new and being heard above the the increasing noise, but maintaining that we're still two brothers. Like, you know, we haven't sold out or we haven't kind of, you know, gone hipster on you. Yeah, look, I guess uh, probably fundamentally every every beer we make, we put, we put a lot of thought into it. So in the in the brewery spectrum, there, there are breweries that, that make new beers each month. And they're sort of at least for their own fold, they real really trail plays, and they're they're about um, sort of really an exploration and a, a discovery in beer. Um, for us, we spend quite a bit of time uh, thinking about each possible new brand before we before we launch it. We launched one late last year, or we released one which really needs some support, but um, called Payday, and it took us about six months to produce the end result for that beer, both in terms of the liquid. And also the, the sort of clothes for the, the beer, the brand. And so a fair bit of thought goes into it. We we sort of it's, it might sound a bit silly, but there's you kind of feel like there's a, a bit of heart and soul to each of the individual beers. And and then once we've sort of done our diligence and our our groundwork, that probably just naturally becomes reflected in the in the brand once it's complete. We generally will make sure that each SKU or core core brand that we release has its own identity and has its own reason for existing other than just to provide another colour in the range. Yeah, yep. 
And, and I would imagine that uh, picking up a trophy for payday probably won't hurt its chances of success going forward. Yeah, we were really, really lucky there. And, you know, with the Australian International Beer Awards, the guys the guys do a fantastic job. Like all brewers, we enter our beers, we hope for the best. And um, I reckon with that sort of thing, as well as having good beer, you have to have a lot of, lot of good luck. So, uh, you know, you can, you, I reckon you can have great beer, but not necessarily win awards they're not everything but it's terrific when you get acknowledged um particularly from you know the others in the industry yeah yeah agree but that said andrew you know uh consistency has a has a big play in winning awards you know you can see brewers that spring up one year and then disappear and uh, i mean i remember I, I can't remember the year but it was the year of the first melbourne um, australian home brewers conference um, and the bus tour came out, and it was the first time I've actually visited your venue. And uh, I had the great privilege of sitting next to Jamil Janishev, who home brewers would know very, very well, and uh, people who listen to beer podcasts. And uh, we were sitting down drinking your brown ale, and uh, you know that wasn't long after you'd opened. And he was incredibly uh, complimentary about the, the the quality of the beer. Yes. And you know, you guys just seem to have had a quality focus from day one. And whereas a lot of brewers, you know, almost uh, are willing to open before they feel that they've got their recipes um, all dialed in and there's a little bit of a practice period for them. You guys have been uh, you know, on song from the, the very early days of opening. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm really flattered that you, that you say that and, uh, you know, having, having, having heard that, we the, the first two batches of beer we made, which were also batches of growler, we dumped, which was heartbreaking. Um but uh, and and the, it was perfectly good beer, but it wasn't really within the sort of flavour range that we were hoping for. You know, we we scaled up our homebrew recipes, and and the bitterness was, you know, off, and a couple of other things were off. So we we knew we had to ditch them. And I guess back then, you know, ten years ago, when most people were sort of exposed or confronted to our brand and what we were doing. It was generally met with scepticism or, oh, you know, is that homebrew? You know, what's this homebrew like? So there was a, a fair bit of, I guess, lack of awareness and, and that was sort of followed by, um, I guess, lack of trust. And so we knew that we just had no option other than to do our very best and only put our best forward. We've probably made a lot of choices along the years that have um, constrained our growth but have sort of been faithful to that sort of idea. We're very conservative in terms of where we send our beer and how, how far we send it uh, just because we're kind of anxious to make sure that when, when someone does get it in their hands and then finally drink it, that it's still in good shape. We have things go wrong from time to time. Sometimes people make mistakes. Sometimes equipment doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And so invariably, you know, the occasional batch is not really the way that we want it to be. And we just sort of suck it up. And as difficult as it is, we, we let beer go rather than putting out something that we're not really happy with. So you're right, that is really quality is sort of a pillar of our beer making philosophy. It's probably held us back to some degree, but something we're not really willing to, to sacrifice on. I have to say, I remember that day that you guys all came down in the bus. And that was probably one of the most nervous days I've ever had, um, having 60 home brewers come through our, our venue brewery. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you guys liked the growler. No, it was a terrific day, and uh, but you you are coming up to ten years. Has there ever been uh, you know just change conscious changes about what you've done, or there've just been slight tweakings over the uh, over the course of ten years? Um, look, we're we're always looking to improve, and so you know even the old recipes are up for grabs. And sometimes we find we need we need to vary them 
because uh, raw materials have changed or in some cases we may not even be able to access some of the key ingredients so we need to we need to modify our recipes to suit. So things are always up for grabs. But I hope that doesn't involve dumbing them down. That seems to be <laughs> that seems to be the uh, you know social media. Any time that there's any changes, it seems to be viewed as dumbing down. But it, it, it's interesting to hear you say that. Um, yeah, no, no, actually, actually, it's kind of the opposite. We're finding that as the consumer base changes in terms of its breadth and depth, and the the mar- the, the general market offerings change as more entrants and more overseas brands come into the space. Generally, we're finding that consumer preferences change over time. So, for example, um, the levels of hop character that were acceptable or or desirable in Growler, you know, eight years ago, uh, probably wouldn't be sufficient today. So we've actually also adapted our recipes based on where we think our target consumer for each product is at the time. And that, that generally is opposite to dumbing down. It generally involves souping things up a bit more. <laughs> and, yeah, so uh, what, what have you got lined up for your 10-year anniversaries? Are you, are you marking it in a big way? Do you see it as a major milestone to have kept going for 10 years? Yeah, look, we're, um, we're glad to be here and we're wrapped that we've, we've gotten to this point. We're definitely going to have some celebrations down at the brewery. The guys made a re-release of The Governor two weeks ago. So that will be our 10-year anniversary beer. The original governor won a trophy for Best Barley Wine, I think it was in 2011, and the, the Premier's Trophy for Best Victorian Beer. So we're really pleased to bring that one back. And so that, that's sort of exciting for us. And uh, we're toying with the idea of, a, of, of growing up a beer beast that we might butcher and include in, in our festivities that uh, is totally raised on spent grain from the brewery. So that one's in work at the moment. We're working with a farmer to get that sorted out at the moment. There's one for the vegans. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> they can have the uh, spent yeast. <laughs> uh, that's right. There will be some spent some spent grain available uh, for those that don't want to. That's it. Exactly. They can have the they can have the raw material. Yeah, that's it. Terrific. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for joining. No, I was going to say, Pete and uh, Matt, thanks heaps for uh, for having me. I look forward to to staying in touch, and I know where you're at, so I'll be able to get you an invitation for our uh, ten year party. That'll be awesome. Actually, the, the one question I did want to have is: up in Brisbane, we have seen a lot of the southern brewers start to you know extend their reach and get a lot of uh, beers up here. You guys do seem to be a largely Melbourne operation. Um, do you have uh, plans to? Send your beers further afield? Uh, look, essentially, no, not at this stage. We really would like to get, and I was speaking to Dave about this this morning, we really would like to have at least one outlet in Queensland. Probably, I guess it'll have to be in Brisbane because we have a massive demand for, in particular for Kung Fu, and we know people up there really want it but can't get it. So I'm hoping that in the next few months we can arrange something where, where folks in your part of the country can get their hands on some Kung Fu. But um, I guess I'll let you know when that happens. We are sort of fairly conservative in terms of how far and wide we, we send our product. But uh, but I'm hopeful that we do get something in Queensland, even if it's just one store in the next uh, coming months. Terrific. Well, I can recommend some stores for you. But uh, Andrew, congratulations on 10 years. You know, happy birthday. We do hopefully uh, we'll get down and be part of the celebrations. But otherwise, uh, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Terrific. Thanks a lot, Pete. Thank you, Matt. Mate, our pleasure. Thank you. Sorry it's taken 10 years. No, no, very welcome. We'll look forward to seeing you in September. Good on you.
Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. Well, Brendan Varis, new head judge of the Australian International Beer Awards, thanks for joining us on Radio Brews News. Thanks for having me back, guys. It's always good to talk. Thanks, mate. Thanks for your time. And listen, um, I guess the impetus for getting in touch with you today was some, I guess, some criticism of, um, and I think brought about by a lack of understanding of how the Australian International Beer Awards works. And, you know, without pumping our own tyres up and full disclosure, I'm, I've been part both back of house and, and front of house for the last six years or so, the largest annual beer awards in the world. Uh, and I think the certainly the largest one that has both packaged and draft beer. As the head judge, would you perhaps give our listeners just a bit of a, uh, a pricey, a bit of a, a summary of, of how the awards kind of work. Yeah. Um, so how do we go about judging beer? Firstly, there's typically a table of five or six judges um, and beers are scored out of 20. They're scored individually first and then the the panel of five or six will compare notes, so to speak, or have a discussion and together um, there'll be a table aggregate score that decides what the beer's finished score is, so an average of all the judges' scores, and and that score will determine whether it gets a gold, silver, or bronze medal. Now, within that, I think the important thing to note is, um, and, and that people need to understand, is the the gold, silver, and bronze medals means it's up to a standard. It doesn't mean that it's first, second, or third as you as it would be in a running race, and that's a little bit different to what happens in uh, competitions in the US. Um, so we're talking the GABF and the World Beer Cup, but it is in line with what happens more generally within within food competitions, whether they be coffee or or wine or other beverage competitions. It's probably more in line with that, but but it is a distinct and important difference to understand that it's it's up to a standard as opposed to first, second, and third past the post. Yeah, um, and uh, and I suspect when 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 you under when you understand that, then you certainly can understand why there's uh, perhaps a, often a, a large number of bronze medals, because you know the de- the definition of, of getting that 15 out of 15 out of 20, which is you know kind of 75 percent, I guess you could call it, means you know there there are a good number of beers that can achieve that standard. It means that stylistically, it's it's very very close to exactly what the style calls for, and it's technically very very good which is minor technical faults so so those beers are still good beers they're not the best um, and it's certainly possible that there's going to be more than one of those beers that represent a really good example still of the style at the at the bronze level then you get up to that gold and you know they're the the, the pickings are pretty slim i think something like seven or eight percent of beers get get gold medals and so you're right up there with a-grade world-class examples which you're scoring gold medals yeah and we should point out too um although hopefully it doesn't need saying but all the all the beers uh first of all are, are, are tasted blind so it's in a 
exactly the same glass across all of the tables. All of the judges get exactly the same portion in exactly the same style glass. Uh, the only identifier is a single number, which tells you that it's beer number one in this category, you know, or, or you know, the AM session or the PM session. Yeah, that's correct. And the other thing I think it's important to note, just so that everyone's aware, of, you know, how how far the RESV to go to ensure integrity, and that is that the no one ever gets to assess their own beer because blind or not, so there'd be a handful of people that could pick their beer blind and, and we go to great lengths to ensure that no one's, no one's ever assessing their own beer during the judging. And I guess extra to that is that, unfortunately for you guys at Feral, uh, the head judge, if he has a, a brewery, that brewery is not eligible to enter their beers for the Australian International Beer Awards. Yeah, that's the case. So we're gonna we're just going to sit on the bench for a couple of years. Look, I'll be pleased if in a couple of years' time we can jump back in and do as good as a as Warren and the White Rabbit guys did this year. But, yeah, that that's the case. It was a difficult decision for us because I know the guys like to like to have a dog in the fight at that time of the year. But I guess it was kind of someone had to put their hand up and do it. We've had some pretty good success over the years there. We don't think it's going to negatively impact our business overall for, by sitting out for a couple of years. And so I guess either I didn't duck fast enough or, or I raised the hand. <laughs> Not sure the music, that was the music yet, stopped and you couldn't find a chair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So um, we'll have our go. Exactly. And, and look, that's, that brings us, I guess, to an important point, which is just completely flying out of my mind now. Hang on, it'll come back to me. Matt, have you got something while I get that back? Yeah, um, Brendan, when you look at the, uh, like a bronze, silver and gold are essentially standards. What terminology would you recommend the brewers use when they're referring to them? You know, do they achieve gold or achieve bronze or do they win bronze? They're awarded, I guess. Awarded, yeah. Awarded bronze, yep. Yeah, that's probably what I... Because, yeah, one of the things that started the conversation is, as Pete said, they're seeing the way that various brewers have come out and used... And and obviously one of the reasons that brewers enter the awards is to get some benchmarking of their beers and some feedback back on their beers, but also the ability to, to, to market the quality of their beers but we've seen media releases come out where uh, brewers have been trumpeting we beat an international field to win gold for example um, and when you know you can have seven people in a category all being awarded gold mm. you know is, is that a technically correct way to refer to there yeah yeah look, look that is i would say personally a little bit misleading to say that you beat a field to win gold because you know as we just went through there can be more than one although it's not common um Certainly, the, you know, bronzes are there to get to say that you you beat a field to come third and get bronze, and that would be also equally misleading. And but that's it. If, if you're able to market a bronze medal and and convince someone to buy it on the basis that you were in third level, whether it be third place or just not as good as at least two beers in front of you, then you're a better marketer than we've got in our team. <laughs> yeah. But that said, absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and and I guess it's it's it is a hard one to to manage, and it, I, and for the RASV to to restrict or to control how people communicate their uh, medals that they're awarded, um, it's a uh, ultimately I think it does come down to the integrity and honesty of the of the person that's been awarded any given medal and how they communicate that and what it means. Um, but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it's something that you, could, you can hold at the 
competition, uh, the, the body, the RSV that run the competition and, and put it on them to make everybody conform to exact language, that would be a difficult thing to enforce. And I guess it also makes it very difficult if they're acting as an enforcement agency for, for that sort of thing. It can act as a disincentive for people or you know, create a sour note for people who uh, and yeah. disincentivise them from entering. Yeah, I will add, though, um, that the advisory committee of the RASV and, and also I know some of the other beer awards around the country, on a yearly basis, they, you know, they review, do we stick with this um, up to a standard as opposed to first, second, third? and. And I wouldn't be surprised if one day in the future that that may change. And I, and I suspect the bigger the competition, the more applicable the first, second and third becomes. So look, it's something that's constantly being reviewed by all the organisations that run competitions around Australia that up to a standard or first, second, third thing. It also highlights, I, curious, I guess, I'd be, oh, sorry. I was going to say it might be interesting for listeners to post their preference or recommendation on those type of things on, on either the Facebook or the forum or whatever, wherever people feedback to this on. I'm sure it'll get read by the appropriate people. Absolutely. Uh, yes, definitely. Prof, did you remember what you wanted to ask? Uh, yeah, and I've lost again, sorry. I have to write it down. Okay. Brendan, last last week, this was a conversation that arose out of our chat last week on, on the podcast. But the other thing, Pete and I had a bit of a chat about the Fin Diesel that you released using hop extracts. And uh, I was saying that it was fantastic that Feral had released that beer because it gave those extracts some credibility rather than being seen as you know cheapening the product. But I understand that you've had a little bit of negative feedback about your use of the um, ingredients. Yeah, there have been a couple of little pokes that we've had, nothing too serious that we, we couldn't handle, but I think it's just worth noting that the particular one in Finn Diesel's case, uh, lupulin powder, was developed by Yakima to improve quality rather than to perhaps reduce the cost of making beer. And I think that's an important distinction when it comes to using adjuncts. You know, what, what's your motivation? Is your motivation to, to improve the quality or make make the beer taste better or to reach a different taste profile that you couldn't otherwise or is it just simply so you can bank another couple of dollars so in the case of the lupulin that that's very much about you know being able to achieve a slightly different flavor profile and or get to a previous flavor profile of a beer in a different way and and in the case of hops where there's a shortage of some varieties to do it in a way that may use less hops that's very very different to just you know changing an ingredient or a recipe so we can make the P&L read a bit better at the end of the year. And so what was your reason for, for using them? Um, what characters were you looking for or what consistency uh, were you looking for when you chose to use them? Yeah, look, we have to fight hard in an, in Hop Hog to, to make sure we don't get that vegetal over-extracted hop sack kind of woody, stemmy type flavour. We really run a fine line with the amount of hops that go in and the contact time and then the temperatures that we're using. So if there was something that would allow us to do that with more consistency and to get a cleaner hop flavour, then we thought we would trial it and we, we put it into a different beer to just see how that product worked. And that beer was, was Finn Diesel. Ultimately, I don't know that this particular one will find a place into Hop Hog in this circumstance because it's a year of different results, not necessarily bad ones, but different to what to date we've, we would have expected. So that's why it came into our program. I, I do know that people haven't quite cracked that code around quantity of hops and contact time and temperature to keep that over-extracted hop flavour out of your beer. If you haven't cracked that code, then lupulin powder is going to perhaps make that easier for you to do. So it's definitely going to find a place. And... 
I do think with enough experimentation and and work around it, it can definitely improve yield. And by yield, I mean more beer for less hops. When there's a hop shortage around the world and there are breweries that can't get the hops they want, then if we can use them more responsibly and share hops around a bit further because of it, then, then I think that's something that we should all consider. Do you think that there is a little an element of fear of technology, fear of, you know, changing techniques and that it's automatically regarded as a negative? Yeah, look, look, the whole adjunct thing, it gets a bad rap and rightly so when, you know, usually the first place you think is, you, you know, let's put less malt in the beer, use some type of cheap extract to get cheap alcohol and that's going to mean across a lot of leaders you, you can show us much more substantial profit after a period. And that's, that's normally where people's first thoughts go when it comes to adjuncts and extracts. If you cast that to one side and make it more about the motivation and the motivation being better quality beer, and that's that's got to be, I think, everyone in craft beer's end game, then there shouldn't be anything to be scared of, I don't think. I mean, I don't know. Look, hopefully over time, people's perception of that will change and uh, maybe a bit of it's just experience. And certainly as brewers, we are creatures of habit. You know, if something's worked and you've done it that way for a while, then, then why change it? I think... You know, where we are, we're always reassessing what we do. Can we do it better? Can we improve a process, a procedure? We'll always do whatever we can to examine that to the end and, and see if there is a better way to do what we do. And I guess I can't speak for other people's mentalities, but yeah, perhaps as brewers, we could be guilty of being creatures of habit. Brendan, Matt and I certainly pointed out this time last week when we were recording our most recent podcast that Louis Pasteur probably copped a lot of the same shit for, you know, that using that newfangled microscope and, you know, you, you're tinkering with God's plan, you know. So I guess every, every uh, technology it, has its critics. It, it does. It never ends. And, you know, so we're, we're probably plating less now that there's technologies like PCR in the brewery for what Louis Pasteur did. So all facets, not just the ones that you actually form part of the recipe as such, but all facets of brewing are moving on. And yeah, you're dead right. If we, if we didn't learn what he knew or did show us um, could be seen under a microscope, then beer would be far worse off for it. And now we've got faster, quicker ways of even doing that. But it is just part of that constant evolution of beer. You know, we've seen brewers move to stainless steel because you get a more consistent, cleaner ferment, you know, over wooden barrels that they used 200 years ago. But then we've also seen, as a response to that, craft brewers are starting to experiment with uh, wooden barrels again. And, uh, you know, smoked malts were phased out once we had electric uh, and clean heating of uh, barley that didn't have the smoke characters and you know, resulted in cleaner beer. And it's given brewers uh, the chance to go back and revisit some of the older, smokier uh, beer styles. Um, it, it's just part of, surely it's just part of that constant evolution of technology and grappling with it and then seeing, uh, you know, what old methods can, be reinvigorated yeah it's, it's exactly that and as i say I'll, I'll, I'll say it again it's more about your motivation you know are you doing it to improve your quality or doing it just to skim a few dollars or add a few dollars to your pnl at the end of the year I, th- I think that that's probably more what it's about rather than you know let's do four ingredients and grind up the malt with a, a hammer before you do all that by hand i think that that's secondary it's, it should be the beer quality first and, and as long as you, that's your prime motive then Pretty well, most things are fair game. Terrific. Well, Brendan Varis, thank you very much for joining us to talk a little bit about AIBA and also hop extracts. And uh, we probably uh, are well overdue for a longer chat with you about all things feral at some stage soon. Oh, always happy to do that, guys. Let us know when you've got a slot in that busy radio brews news schedule. <laughs> Terrific, Brendan. No worries. Thanks very much, Brendan, for joining us today on, on Radio Brews News. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. 
Thank you for joining us for the first episode of Beer is a Conversation. Let us know your thoughts about the new format. If you like what we're doing, you can jump on iTunes and leave a comment and a feedback and help other people find the podcast. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Thank you.